0: Thank you for listening to the Rivers Church podcast with Pastor Andre and the Rivers team. Be sure to subscribe for a weekly dose of encouragement and inspiration to help your daily life. We pray that this message will help in whatever season of life you might be in. We're going to be dealing with, for the next five weeks, the book of one John, or the letter of one John. And um, as I opened this morning, J.I. Packer, who passed away in 2020, wrote a number of very important books, but one of them is called Knowing God. He said this, he said doctrinal preaching certainly bores the hypocrites, but it is only doctrinal preaching that will save Christ's sheep. So we need to know what we believe, not just be boosted and inspired with hype. It will save us when we have a deep grounding of the Bible. Now let me tell you where I'm going today. We're going to deal with chapter 1 but not right now. We're going to do a bit of an introduction because context is extremely important before you read scripture. Chapter 1 today of 1 John is only 10 verses long and I'll look at it in two sections. That chapter is easy to break up. Next week chapter 5 uh, chapter chapter 2, sorry. Next week chapter 2 we will deal with under five headings. But we will introduce the book because the context of why a book was written is extremely important. When you open your Bible, you, you don't just read words. There's a, there's a background to it. There's a person writing this letter. They're writing it into a context, and need, a situation. You understand that? You understand what you're reading. Are you with me? And the author is the disciple John. It was written A.D. 95 to A.D. 100 while he is on the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. And so he wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three letters and he wrote the book of Revelation. You have the disciples Peter, James, and John. He was one of the top three. He was the one close to Jesus. In the Gospel, he calls himself the one Jesus loved. And so special relationship in this letter There are very particular needs that are addressed that we're going to look at. The other two letters are written to individuals, to the elect lady, to Gaius, but this one is written to the church in Asia Minor. He was the oldest disciple. The others had died, and he lived a long time. He was called John the Elder because he was old. He had seen trends coming through the church, and now he's writing to them out of concern, and he's trying to address those trends which also exists today in the church. Are you with me? And so he writes this letter, and uh, Rome had come along, and it had conquered Jerusalem in AD 70. So this is some 20 years later. The Jews and the Christians were quite discouraged because Rome had sacked Jerusalem and dispersed them, and people were starting to lose their faith and mixing their faith with other things and modifying it, and he was writing into that context Uh, the book majors on jesus 73 times jesus direct references to jesus are mentioned and that's very important because there's only 105 verses in the book 73 times jesus is mentioned how many of you know you need to pay attention and so we see that we also see 14 references to the father we see 10 references to the holy spirit and 87 references out of 105 verses To God and to the Trinity in some way. So this book is about Jesus, it's about the Trinity. And when you read it, don't get lost in all the words. Think about what's being brought across and why. And no no book in the Bible, funny enough, has such a high concentration of references to God. And there are what's called parallelisms, if you're making notes. Parallelisms are contrasts. So there's several of them. We have Christ and then you have the Antichrist, you have light, and then you have darkness, you have truth, and then you have falsehood, you have righteousness, and then you have sin, you have love for the Father, and love for the world, you have the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of the Antichrist, it contrasts all the time, which are important for you to recognize, and the book is really about recognizing error, But when you recognize it, you've got to deal with it with a spirit of love, not a spirit of superiority or condemnation. Are you with me? Well, you're saying a lot. We'll read in a moment. And when we read, you'll be like, aha. Okay? All good? you're at home, it'll be aha. That's if you don't get up and go to the kitchen, eat cookies, or talk to people. Just keep your eyes on the screen. Now, the words that come out in this book are interesting we read the word love a lot, and we're going to deal with this over the next few weeks. We're going to find out what love really is, not what the world thinks it is. And the context will teach you what love is. It's a noun in this book. Forty-six times that this noun is mentioned, and uh, never once is the, 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 the word for love. You know, there are four words for love in the Bible. One of them is erotic or sexual. It's never mentioned never mentioned. So when you read that, it's not referring to that. You can't take that word and turn it into something it's not. And it's referred to in the book. And uh, you read this phrase, if you're making notes this morning, to know. The, The phrase to know is mentioned 35 times. Now, why do I emphasize all this stuff? It's because Christianity isn't all about emotion. It's about knowing things. You can't just feel, I feel the Lord said and I feel the Lord said. It becomes super subjective and that's where heresy And fault can creep in, even though you're well-intentioned. You've got to know what you believe. It is mental and emotional. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Are you with me? And he talks about knowing. And then the word that you'll see in this book all the time, which is often misunderstood, is the word fellowship. Connection with God and connection with others. That's what we experience through belonging to a church. We connect with God and we connect with others And what hinders that, John deals with extensively. Now, there are three key themes in the book, after all I've said now. If you're making notes, write this down. What are the key themes? The first is testing truth. And that's something our world does not want to do anymore. Doesn't want to judge anything or test anything. And repeatedly, he says, we must test to find out what is truth and what is error. The second thing that you don't hear about preached anymore is something called holiness remember that old ancient word that your grandfather used to mention well this grandfather is now telling you that word it's a very important word and uh, it's the greek word hagios which when you read the word it's like oh, okay i get it hagios means different it doesn't mean super perfect halo you know behaving a certain way dressing all boring No, that's not holiness. Holiness is different. It's different. And then the third theme in the book is love. So, testing truth, holiness, and love. And there are various tests by whether we can ascertain whether something is of God or not. Now, the general purpose of the letter is expressed in the letter, and I want to bring your attention to these verses quickly this morning that talk about why he's writing. 1 John 1 and verse 4, he says, and you'll see on the screen, we are writing these things so that, can you see this is the reason, you may fully share our joy. Don't lose the joy of knowing Jesus in complicated things. Then he says in 1 John 2 and verse 1, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. Why does he say you will not sin? Isn't it obvious? We'll talk about that when we go through the book. Then 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12, I'm writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. That's the reason he's writing. Then the fourth uh, one here is, I have written this to you, 1 John 5, Uh, To you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. So confirmation, warnings, this is what comes through. And then he also talks about writing to fathers, writing to children, writing to young men. But we'll deal with that next week. Now, there are two errors addressed, and I'll get to read the text in a moment. These two errors, if you understand them before you read the book, they make a massive difference. And the two errors that existed in that church... At that time in Asia Minor, they exist in the church today. The first one is called Docetism. D-O-C-E-T-I-S-M. Docetism or Docetism, depending on how you pronounce it. And it was a doctrine or a thinking that was originated by a man called Serinthus. And uh, it's also known as Serinthianism. But Serinthus developed this doctrine in the church... And this is what it really boils down to, and it still exists today. God is good. God is not evil. And so God can't touch or be associated with evil. God can't look on evil. In other words, God is distant. But wait, that's not all it is. They say that if God is good and God is righteous and God is holy, then God cannot be associated with sin. Jesus couldn't be God. Now stay with me here because it's very important. They said Jesus was a man who was born and then at his baptism, listen to this, at his baptism the Holy Spirit came down. Remember that? And John the Baptist saw a dove came down and descend on him, this is my beloved son, they said that the Holy Spirit, watch this, filled this ordinary man, and this ordinary God man, who, who loved God, and was dedicated to God, began to do miracles and healing, and then at his death on the cross, the Holy Spirit left him, and that's why he cried out, why have you forsaken me, it all, all heresy is always logical, And so it came on him, used him, and then abandoned him because at the cross he took our sin and God can't be associated with sin. So they described Jesus incorrectly. You say, well, does it matter? Yes, it does matter. Because the foundation of our faith is that Jesus is God. And, and, this heresy exists today in the church. There's a massive movement in the world, I won't mention their name, church movement that teaches that you as a Christian are exactly like Jesus. And if you filled with the Holy Spirit, you can do signs, wonders, and miracles too, like he did. Now wait, they also deal with the second heresy because this church follows the same pattern. And you'll notice that when you go to those churches, you don't see more miracles, you don't see more signs and wonders than you see in an average church that believes in general healing and the laying on of hands. So we've got to get the deity of Christ right because if we don't, we will practice wrong things and live in an illusion of something that is actually not true. Are you with me? People think doctrine isn't important. It's extremely important because because what you believe is how you will live. So that is the first heresy and it led to sin also in the lives of people because this is what they said. You can sin in the body, but it doesn't matter as long as your spirit is saved. So if I believe in Jesus and I love him, God will overlook the sins of my body. And this is what we're teaching in churches today. He loves you so much, it doesn't matter what you do. Yeah. And John says, if we, have, if we say we have no sin, we lie yeah. and do not do it. He's not trying to finger the Christian who's walking with God. He's trying to finger those who are trying to excuse themselves. So, docetism, Serinthianism from Serinthus. And the second thing that he's addressing in this book, which is in the world today again, is something called Gnosticism. It starts with a G, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-M, like Gnosticism. And it comes from the Greek word gnosis, G-N-O-S-I-S, which means to know, and it refers to special revelation or special knowledge. Now, there were people in the church who thought they had a, had a, had a greater spiritual knowledge than the average Christian. They had special knowledge, and they, they mixed Eastern religion They coupled it with Christianity, it was a blend, and there were some spiritual practices like meditation, asceticism, that's why Paul in Colossians writes about, you know, do not eat, do not handle, do not touch. They thought if you did those things, you would end up like in Eastern religion at a different level. So they taught the church, you need to do this, you need to do this, but that actually is not what the Bible teaches. Then there were other practices like fasting, which we do, and beating the body, and celibacy, which you see... All over the world today, from monks and monasteries, taught that if you do that, you'll be a different level Christian to Mr. Ordinary in the pew. That is not true. And as a result of that, a superiority crept in and a special knowledge. There are churches today, and I'll say this because this, this really irks me. There are churches that run courses that you pay for called healing schools. You don't need to go to a healing school to heal someone. The Bible says you lay hands on the sick and they will recover. If they don't, it's the sovereignty of God. It talks about the gifts of healing. If you've got a gift of healing, you don't need to go to school. When you pray for someone, they're healed. But these schools teach that there's special knowledge. You know, there's Rivers Church, but then there's our church. And those courses usually cost like two, three thousand rand. And you spend weeks there while they indoctrinate you in their practices because there are no secrets to these things. The gospel is quite simple. Are you with me? So don't be fooled. We had a couple that we know, sad to say, they come from another country. They travel all the way over here to go to one of these churches and attend a healing school. And it's made a difference in the life of their church at all. Expensive. It's, it's kind of like I've got a certificate now. There's no such thing as special knowledge. It's very simple, and it's all revealed in here. Are you with me? You see... In the scriptures, we even read in Revelation, the church at Thyatira, talks about the deep secrets of Satan. It's a deception that creeps into the church. William Barclay, who's written the Daily Study Bible Commentary, says this, and we'll read our text in a moment. He says, The Gnostics, therefore, divided men into two classes, the sukukoi, that's a Greek word, who have never advanced beyond the principle of physical life, And never attain to anything else than what was to all intents and purposes animal living. And the pneumaticoi, which pneuma, spirit, who are truly spiritual and truly akin to God. Higher individuals, lower individuals, divides the church. That's why the word fellowship is used. Because the minute you think you're superior, you divide from people, you can't fellowship with them. Are you with me? Okay, it so makes sense? And the uh, interesting thing is, uh, heresy always makes the teacher great. Sound teaching always makes Jesus great. And these teachers or these heretics thought they were improving the church, but actually they were harming the church, and the same is true today. People who preach things that are unsound think they're really helping people, but actually they're damaging the church. So, Context is important, and now we come to read five verses. You say it's about time, and we're going to look at it in two sections. So let's read from 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1 in the NIV, and he says, that which was from the beginning, very important, the beginning of time, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word God. Of life. He's referring to Jesus here. He says, the life, speaking of Jesus, appeared. Uh, some translations say it was made manifest you know, at the incarnation. And we have seen it. He's already says, he already says it again. We've seen it and we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father. Not the good man. He came with life in him to bring life. And he says he was with the Father and he has appeared to us. Then we read in verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Can you see how many times he says that? Seen, heard, touched, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Don't lose your hope and your joy of being united with the church and with Jesus. This is the Jesus who came. And So number one here, we're looking at it under two headings. John's witness to the deity of Christ. He now says, I, I was with this man for three years. I touched him. I saw him. We, 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 we saw his miracles. We heard his voice. And uh, he mentions four times seen. He mentions twice heard. And so, this, I'm witnessing something. I'm not giving you a philosophy or a religion here. I saw it and I can tell you, he is God. Are you with me? This is not, you know, people say the Bible is, you know, it's written over so many centuries. How do you know it's true? Well, people who lived long, who saw him and heard him and were with him for three years, they're telling you. If they tell you, you pay attention. You listen because our salvation hinges on it. And in fact, in order to reiterate that John, when he wrote his gospel, he speaks a similar language. And I want us to read from John chapter one, the gospel of John. We'll read a few verses there. If you want to turn there, you can do that or you can look on the screen. Uh, It says again, notice, in the beginning was the Word. In other words, the Bible you read is actually Jesus. And it says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, notice, in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So just pause for moment. Here is the creator God in Jesus. That's why when you read Genesis chapter 1. It's let us make man in our image. Plural. People don't believe in this anymore. They believe in evolution. But That's why Jesus is so important. Because he's not just a religious teacher. He is the creator who became flesh. And John here defends this, and we read on. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In other words, even though he's been crucified, he lives. And he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He became a man, but it was God in the man. God dwelt in human beings and uh, that uh, doceticism thinking that God couldn't come into the world is not true. And he says here, we have seen his glory. Glory means radiant light. The glory of the one and only Son. That is that one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the God of eternity and he is the Savior of history. And here he presents him because the deity of Christ is upon which our salvation hinges. God came down and in his person paid for our sins so that we could have fellowship with God. He was life and he gave life. Does that make sense? And notice he was from the beginning. He has always been, he was and is and is to come. Then the second thing here John addresses walking in the light. He now switches to the second section of this early uh, chapter here. We only got 10 verses today, so it's easy. John addresses walking in the light from verse 5 to 10. And we'll read that and I'll unpack that for you as we look at the rest of this. Chapter 1 and verse 5 This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. In other words, not our own concoction. God is light. In other words, he's righteous. That's the analogy here. In him, there is no darkness at all. God. God is fully righteous and he has no sin, yet he came to the planet. And he says here, uh, if we claim to have fellowship with him, to be united with him, yet we walk in darkness, in other words, we live in sin, we lie and do not live out the truth. You can't sin in your body and not sin in your spirit. You can't excuse sin and call it modern times or lifestyle or reinterpretation. You can't. If you say you're connected to this God, you've got to walk as he walked. He says that in chapter 2. Are you with me? And that's why he's addressing, he's not trying to make you feel guilty as a Christian. He's saying, hey, these two things don't work. How How can you live a life that the Bible says you mustn't live and then call yourself a Christian? That's exactly what people are doing today, and the church goes along with it. Why? Because we have topical preaching instead of doctrinal preaching. We don't know the simplicity of this. Am I making sense today? And we're not condemning anyone. We're just presenting the truth of how we live. He says here, uh, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, in other words, in righteousness and obedience, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. This unites the church and doesn't divide the church. And he says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin cleanses us the NIV uh, sorry the King James says then he says this notice if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us why is he saying that he's saying hey do you think you're so good you think you're a Christian you've been a Christian for years uh, you're not he's not saying that He's not saying you're not loved by God and you're not a Christian and he's not saying your sins are forgiven. He's saying if you think that you are so like sinless perfection, you're making a mistake. You are loved by God, but you also need to grow in God. Are you with me? And then he says here, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar And his word is not in us. So very important here that uh, he's making sin an issue. He's saying sin is an issue and it needs dealing with. It needs dealing with that salvation. Otherwise you can't be saved. Jesus needs to be your savior and all your sins need to be forgiven because you follow him and believe in him. But then as you walk as a Christian, you can't do as you like. You've got to constantly come to him to stay connected to him. And how you do that? Just like you confess at salvation... You confess every day, and that keeps you connected to him and to others, and that's what keeps the church pure. If you think it doesn't matter what you do in your body because God loves you, you've only got half a truth. Because you see what's happened in the church, it's happening today, it happened then, is we mix up two things. You're making notes, write this down. We mix up something called justification and sanctification. Justification is your position. Remember I spoke about being seated in heavenly places, sit, walk, stand. You are saved and have a position in God called Christian. You are a child of God, a royal priesthood, positionally because of like birth. You know, like when you're born in a rich family, you might have no money, but if your parents are rich, you're positionally rich. And so we are saved. We're on our way to heaven, but then sanctification is what we call, not position, process. There's a process of growing in righteousness. I don't swear anymore. I don't speak like the movies. Mm? The only F word I use is friend and fellowship. Come on now. And people today are living as they like. As long as the church has got a vibe, we just love you, brother. And that's not sound doctrine. And they had that there. We have it today. We've got to understand, and we've got to confess. And when you confess, you get forgiven. Now, people say, "Well, why do I need to? Why do I need to confess my sins?" Well, you see, here's the thing: if you're making this, you are, but you aren't. That's the tension of the Christian life. I am forgiven by God, and here's where Christians have a problem because we have what's called an overemphasis of grace. People say, yes, but you you see, and and can I say this? Every heresy has resurgences. They come and go. They come and go. In the 80s, we had what was called the heresy of sinless perfection, and that heresy has been propagated again today. You know what it says? It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, notice this on the screen with me, this this verse here, and I'm prompting the visual steam to bring you see you just you just have to keep repeating yourself it's like a wife at home if you keep nagging it eventually comes up God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so what they say is you see Jesus took on all your sin and now you you shouldn't even call yourself a sinner in fact there's some of them that are extreme and we grew up with this is that you know when we sing amazing grace When it comes to the phrase, that saved a wretch like me. They won't sing that. I keep quiet. I'm not a wretch. I'm the righteousness of God. That's called sinless perfection. No, no. I know what I am in Jesus. I know I'm loved by God, but I also know what I'm not. Come see me at home. Ask her. Then you will discover, St. Andre is ain't Andre. Come on, how many of you? So we are but we're not. I don't have a problem with that. I know that God loves me and I'm saved and I'm on my way to heaven positionally. I know that God loves me no matter what through Christ has forgiven all my sins. But now when I walk it out, if I say I have no sin, I lie and I do not the truth. But if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just. Now this is what Philip Ryken said. He was the president of a Bible college and a great theologian. Stay with me We'll look at this in two parts. He says, This God has already forgiven all our sins one and for all, once and for all, once and for all, through the death of Jesus Christ. Why then do we need to keep on asking for his forgiveness? The answer, of course, is that we are not perfect and we never will be in this life. We keep on sinning, we, we break God's commandments every day in thought, word, and deed. And although all our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future, sin, is still, sin still has a way of disturbing our fellowship with God. He then says, he goes on, it interferes with our intimacy with Him, estranging us from His holiness. When we sin, therefore, our personal relationship with God needs to be restored. The Puritans called this renewing our repentance. It means asking God to take the forgiveness he has already granted through Christ's death on the cross and apply it freshly and directly to our sins. Can you see now why it's not right to just believe in Jesus and live as you like and call it love? There's a difference. If he is life, we need to live the life. If he is in the light, we need to also walk in the light. But the Gnostics, And the doceticism and the the Cerinthianism, it tried to divide and create special knowledge, but it actually harmed and broke up the church. And John writes to this. J.R. Packer says this in his book, Knowing God. He says, to an age which has unashamedly sold itself to the gods of greed, pride, sex, and self-will, the church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about his judgment. Isn't that the picture of the church today? Fulton Sheen, the great bishop who I enjoy his work, he says there has been no single influence which has done more to prevent man from finding God and rebuilding his character and has done more to lower the moral tone of society than the denial of personal guilt. We don't want to feel guilty. And if we, pastors and preachers who don't make you feel guilty, their churches are packed to the hilt. And guess what? You feel more than know. You need to know more than feel if you're going to get the balance. I love what Mark Twain says. He says, man's the only animal that blushes and the only animal that needs to. We need to have a sense of wrong, but a sense of God's love. And then we confess. And the wonderful thing when we confess is we experience God's wonderful goodness, His grace, and His love. D.L. Moody said, the voice of sin is loud, but the voice of forgiveness is louder. Isn't that great? You see, sin separates us. It causes alienation, but when we confess our sins, we get brought back into fellowship with God. That's why you'll notice in our services, I always call for people to come back to God. Am I looking for hands? No. I'm looking for you to be connected with us and with God, and to go out in His joy, as John says. Are you with me? And when we confess, we receive wonderful and overwhelming forgiveness and cleansing. I, I, I love what, uh, what Martin Luther said. Martin Luther understood grace. He, he taught grace. He, he, he pushed against the Catholic Church and he taught grace. But this is what he says. He says, may a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is a saint. I want to be and remain in the church and little flock of the faint-hearted, the feeble and the ailing who feel and recognize the wretchedness of their sins, who sigh and cry to God incessantly for comfort and help, who believe in the forgiveness of sins. You know, I'm about to close, but I want to say this to you. When you know who you are, not positionally, but in your process of growth, you will be a nicer person and a humbler person. There is no worse person than a superior Christian. They look down on others. But when you know you are as frail as the next one. See, this is the challenge of the church today. We are called bigots and hypocrites because we judge things. But we don't judge them from a high horse. We judge them from his perspective. And we do them so that you would unite with God. Not, oh, look where we are and look where you are. No, 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 it's not that. It's not that superiority. And people who who know they're forgiven and know they have frailties are nicer people to be around. Rick Warren said this, he says, and you know, when you've experienced grace and you feel like you've been forgiven, you're a lot more forgiving of other people. You're a lot more gracious to others. As I wrap up here today, I've got 16 seconds and I will not obey that 16 seconds. I cannot because I know what the other clock says and we will still be good getting out of the car park. Has this helped you today? I've enjoyed teaching on it. And uh, you see, there is grace mentioned in this book despite the call to, um, to not sin and not to be caught up in heresy. And if you're making notes, don't switch off yet. I want you to write this down. Three types of grace that you need to understand in your life, as a, especially as a Christian. The first one is called common grace. Do you know that everyone lives under common grace? You say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, the Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Isn't that true? You don't have to be a Christian to get wet. If you as a Christian and an christian go in the rain, you both get wet. It's called common grace. God God waters the whole earth. He doesn't just water where you live. I water their garden. Those are heathen. Those are unsung. Oh, those are uns- own a nightclub. No rain. No, the rain falls on the planet. Food is given to the planet. It's actually God's goodness and common grace we all live under. But then we experience when we receive Jesus, we receive the second one. It's called saving grace. So even if if a non-Christian tells you, I'm rich and I've got a lot of money, it's common grace, not saving grace. It doesn't mean God loves them. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? God does love them. But it doesn't mean He specifically loves them even though they're sinners. No, they experience common grace. But all people need to find saving grace. That special love that comes from Jesus and uh, as a Savior, and we receive it by faith. But there's a third one, and this is often uh, overlooked, and John talks about it. It's called refreshing grace. It's what happens when you confess your sins, even though you're saved, you get refreshed. You get that, I'm forgiven. You get that new strength. I can go again. Are you with me? You see, you don't stroke the sinner. The sinner needs saving grace, But the Christian needs refreshing grace. Does that make sense? And when you understand those three, you'll live a balanced Christian life. You won't want to sit under teaching that keeps stroking you and telling you, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. I don't want to be told God loves me all the time when I'm living incorrectly. I want to sense guilt and a sense of, yes, I'm not in the light. And you know what? I'm creeping into darkness. And you know what? I'm I'm, I'm compromising. No, I need to come back. I have saving grace. I need refreshing grace. Does that make sense? And it's so important for us to walk in that. That's why today, as we close the service in just a moment, I will ask people to receive saving grace. Because they might be living under common grace and living a lovely life. But you need saving grace so that you can go to heaven. It's the gift of God. But also, some people who have drifted far away, they need refreshing grace. Yes, I recognize. I confess. I failed. I'm coming back. Isn't that good? And we do that in all our services. We extend a hand to people to receive saving grace and refreshing grace. Have you been helped from these 10 verses today? How many of you enjoyed it? Yeah. If you're a Christian today, I want to encourage you to experience refreshing grace on an ongoing basis because it's something we seldom talk about. Now, before I wrap up here, and I've got a minute, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this quickly. In a book by Philip Yancey, it's called What's So Amazing About Grace. fantastic book that he wrote many, many years ago. He tells a story of a young girl just entering her teenage years, grew up in a Christian family, I think it was in California, and lived and, and, and uh, the home was wonderful, but she felt it restrictive. She couldn't understand her parents' holiness and righteousness. And so a typical teenager rebelled against it, pushed back against it, and uh, then decided to run away from home. Well, she ran away from home and decided to go to a city called Detroit. It's quite a tough place. It used to be the center where, where they manufactured cars. And uh, when she got to Detroit, she moved in with the underground crowd, you know, the people on the streets and stuff. And then she met a guy, and he took her in his fancy car, and she thought, man, this is great. And he lavished her with gifts, but she didn't know he was a pimp. And after a while, she, he, he began to groom her, loved her, blessed her, and she couldn't say no. Then he started using her, and she started sleeping with men. But because she was sleeping with men, she couldn't, couldn't live with it. She came from a Christian home. The guilt overwhelmed her, so she started taking drugs and that's how you numb yourself, and you keep going, but eventually, she got to the place where there were black rings under her eyes, she was devastated, she couldn't believe she was living like that, she had no money left, and he started smacking her around, and what started off glamorous ended up being terrible, and like a prodigal, she decided she needed to go home, but she said, my parents are going to be hectic, they're never going to accept me, so she phoned, but couldn't get through And uh, so left a message, you know, those days on the answering machine, left a message and, you know, I'm coming home, would it be okay, I'll be, I'm, I'm on this bus, you managed to scrap the ground, bus fare together. And then she got on the bus and it a long trip from Detroit back to California. And finally, when she got to the bus depot, she wondered, what kind of look will my father give me? What kind of look will my mother give me? Will my mother be there alone? You know, typical mom, my dad probably won't even want to come and look at me. And after all I've done to them and what all they've done for me, you know, that whole thing. When she got to the bus depot and got off, there was mom, dad, granny, grandpa, a couple of relatives all with party hats on and those things that you blow, you know, and and streamers, and they came to cheer her with placards, and they welcomed her home and took her home to a party at home. And she was completely overwhelmed, tears, and was restored to her parents, and she received what we call refreshing grace. But here's the thing, she had to go She had to go back. And this morning, God is wanting people to come for the first time, but he's wanting many to go back. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message.